Good morning and welcome. I greet you in Jesus' name this morning. A special welcome to our visitors that are with us this morning. We hope you are blessed for being here. So as you may remember, I think back about probably March, I had begun what is turning into a series, I guess, of talking about um, the Holy Spirit and just some of the dynamics of the Spirit in the life of a believer. And if you'll remember, in March we, we somewhat launched into what the teachings of Jesus are in the Gospels on the Spirit, what we could expect, thank you, and so on and so forth. And we primarily looked through the Gospels and just, and just um, uh, looked at Jesus' teachings on this. And then we skipped the month of April, and in May then we looked uh, at how the Spirit was given to the people in the book of Acts. And we, we ascertained from that that um, there isn't exactly one right way. In other words, God used various means and various uh, methods. Uh, people had various experiences. But one thing was for sure, they all had the Spirit. When it was said and done, they had the Spirit. Uh, some instances was much more dramatic than others. Some that just said, these people now have the Spirit. And that was that. I intended to bring um, a topic this morning on what defines Spirit fullness. And as I got into it, I realized that I just couldn't cover it all, so I changed the title to Hindrances of Spirit Fullness. And perhaps the next time, um, maybe, we'll look at what actually does define a Spirit-filled person, how that looks. But today we're going to look at the hindrances. The term Spirit-filled has become so misunderstood and so connected to groups and peoples that have very rambunctious and untoward activities in their worship experiences. At least some of us would think that. And with organizations that have been proven fraudulent in connection with things like faith healing and these sorts of things, that I sometimes wonder if we have, um, we have perhaps overreacted a bit to that and we're a little bit hesitant a little, bit, um, um, a little bit shy about saying that, you know what, I, I, I'm spirit-filled. I mean, it just doesn't, this doesn't ring quite right with this. If I would, you know, introduce myself to a stranger and maybe say, hey, you're filled with the Spirit. I, I just, would, we wouldn't do that, would we? Somehow that, 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 that wouldn't, that doesn't connect. So I think, I think perhaps, and maybe that's okay, I'm not saying we should begin to do that, but we've become a little bit shy about, um, about talking about the subject, perhaps. And closer to home, in our own circles, and I mentioned this before and I'll just remind us, it seems that um, as one looks in the past oh, three, four hundred years or whatever, at uh, different schisms that have happened in the larger Mennonite body, it has, has frequently been the fact that there had been, there was the implication that because of dead tra traditionalism 
the spirit had fled and it was time to renew the spirit filling in the group and unfortunately maybe there was some truth to that maybe a lot of truth to it but unfortunately as people follow that path they've ended up at a place where there seems to be no doubt that the spirit isn't there anymore either at least that would be my that would be my take on it so how do we how do we go through this how do we delve into this and figure this thing out well the best way is to stay pretty close to the word of god and that's what we want to do this morning so I'll warn you, this morning, if you're looking for cream puffs, you're probably going to get meat instead. Um, I feel like this is almost too deep for me to, to, to address, and, and uh, I trust uh, we can all be uh, enjoy a little steak today. All right, so the first thing I'd like to, to launch into here, I don't really have a text this morning, but we're going to start out here in Acts 2. We're just briefly going to just look at something here just real quick. And I'm going to be citing a lot of different uh, passages this morning, and I probably won't be asking you to turn to them, simply because I, I don't think we have time, and I wanna, I don't wanna um, make this last any longer than I have to, being as we have a, a fellowship dinner here a little later. But in the, in the uh, in the book of Acts here in in chapter two, very very familiar. We looked at this before actually. But I want to, first of all, try to help us understand what it means to be filled. All right. So this is the first time we have this, this, um, this terminology, filled with the Holy Spirit. In Acts 2, 4, it says, And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. First time this is referenced, that they were filled. So just a few fundamental elementary things we can learn from this verse is that the fullness of the Spirit was a result of a pouring out. Jesus did the pouring out. We received the fullness. Okay? It was a start. It it happened. This was a beginning. The baptism of the Spirit is something every believer is promised and I believe received if he is a true, born-again, repentant, honest seeker. And he says, Lord, I surrender my life to you. He claims the blood of Jesus. Jesus says, I will give you the Holy Spirit. I truly believe he follows through with that promise. However, I do believe that um, a maintenance has to be done if we want to experience this filling or this fullness as we move through our Christian life. I think perhaps there are three main characteristics, or I should say categories, not characteristics, three categories that being full of the Spirit may fall in. So I want to just look briefly at at different times this is referred to in the Scripture, and it specifically says this man was full of the Spirit, or he was filled with the Spirit, or this group of people was, and just see what the context was where that is mentioned. And I think it could be broken down into three different categories. And I wanted to mention this just, um, just at the outstart, and I forgot, so I'll mention it here. Some of the points I t- that I'm going to be sharing with you today, I got out of a book called uh, Baptism and Fullness by John Stott. And a very good book if you, if you want to pick that up for a few bucks and read it. I think it's worth your time. Okay, so number one, first category, I truly believe that from Scripture we could conclude that when it used the term filled with the Spirit, it is a normal characteristic of every person. And I'm just going to cite a few examples here. In Acts 6, when they were picking out deacons, 
The disciples of the apostles told the congregation, they said, Look out ye look ye out among you seven men with with a few um, there was a few things they were supposed to look for. One, they were supposed to have an honest report. They were supposed to be full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. So three things. Honest report, full of the Holy Spirit, and wisdom that we can appoint over this business. Two, three verses later, they came back with seven men. And it says that these men, or at least it says of Stephen, anyway, it says that he was a man full of faith and of the Holy, and of the Holy Ghost. Okay? And I believe that it would be it'd be safe to say that the other seven were as well. I believe that these seven men met that criteria that they were full of wisdom, faith, Holy Spirit. And they had an honest report. Now, it would seem to me, and I'm just going to throw this out for your consideration, but to be a Christian, you just, you, if you're a true Christian... It, it is just a normality that you're going to be of honest report, right? It just seems to be that's the way it's going to be. And that you will have biblical, godly wisdom. And you'll be a person that has faith. Should it not be said that you're going to be a person that's going to have the Holy Spirit? It seems to me that the criteria here um, probably would have fit a lot of people. And, I, and it doesn't seem like they had a hard time coming up with seven men that fit this description. Then we have the uh, description of Barnabas in, in Acts 11.22. And it talks about Barnabas here when he was sent to um, Antioch to talk to the church there. In verse 23 it says, When he came and he had seen the grace of God, he was glad and exhorted them all, that with purpose of heart they would cleave to the Lord. For, and here's his descriptor, he was a good man, and he was full of the Holy Ghost and of faith. There you go. That, that sounds a lot like the deacons that were chosen a few a few chapters before. And uh, in Acts 13.52, we have a description of the disciples at Iconium. And just, just a short sentence, it says, These people were filled with joy and with the Holy Ghost. It seems reasonable that when, if you take these, the, a summary of these three um, scriptures that I pointed out to you, it's just a normality. So it would not be wrong of me to say, you know, Lynn here is full of the Holy Spirit. I mean, he might make you squirm a little bit. You know, his ears might turn red, but it's just true. You know, I could say that of any of you. Uh, it's just a normality of, 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 of a Christian. Okay, then you have reference to people in the Scripture that it specifically says they were filled with the Holy Spirit for a particular officer ministry. Uh, the first one we would come across in the New Testament is John the Baptist. <clears throat> when the angel came and uh, talked to Zacharias about John the Baptist, he said specifically, he shall be filled from the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. Uh, that was going to describe John and how he uh, would go about fulfilling his ministry. The Holy Spirit was going to be present with him to endue him with that power. Paul in Acts 9, whenever Ananias came to him and had his conversation, he said, I want you to receive your sight, and I want you to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, you could take that and say, well, that was Paul's initial filling, you know, as we looked at in, in the first category. And that I think that would be proper. But if you look at Paul's testimony in Acts 22 to Agrippa and in Acts 26 to um, um, 
I'm sorry, in, in Acts 22 it was to the Jews and then it was in Agrippa to, in Acts 26. He testifies them to these people that both Jesus and Ananias had told him that he was, he was going to be called to a special ministry. So I truly believe that the Holy Spirit gave him an unction that, uh, that was unique. And then thirdly, we have instances, and this is probably the largest list, the largest list of um, instances we have, where it says the Spirit filled people for a special circumstance. Again, um, referring back to Zechariah and Elizabeth, uh, when, when um, Mary went over to see Elizabeth, it says that the child leaped in her womb, and it says Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she began to, um, to um, I guess you'd call it prophesy to, to Mary. Whenever Zacharias, again, whenever he, um, he had his tongue tied there for, for a while because of, uh, of an inappropriate question, and um, whenever he took that slate and he wrote on there and he said, this baby's name is John, it says that his tongue was loosed and he was filled with the Holy Spirit and he prophesied. Special, special circumstance. Peter, when he was speaking to the Sanhedrin in Acts 4, it says this, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Ghost, turned and talked to the elders of Israel. Um, we have it whenever Peter and John were together. And uh, they were talking to the Sanhedrin as well. Again, it talks about how they spoke with the Holy Spirit and with boldness. Very familiar story of Stephen. When he was being um, harassed by those leaders there in that synagogue, and he got pretty pointed with them, and he told them where it was at, and it says that they were cut to the heart, they gnashed on him with their teeth, but he, being full of the Holy Spirit, he looked up, saw the glory of God, and he said, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. And Paul, when he encountered, encountered the sorcerer in Acts 13, and we have this, this, um, this encounter, this conversation between the sorcerer and Paul, and, the, and Paul rebukes the sorcerer. It says when he did that, he was full of the Holy Ghost. And he set his eyes on him and said, O full of all subtlety and mischief, thou child of the devil, thou enemy of all righteousness, will thou... Not cease to pervert the right ways of the Lord. So, I'm going to just stop there, but I think you get the point. Uh, we have three different categories here. In Luke 4, if you uh, if you want to look that up sometime, it's it's the over the time of Jesus' baptism, and he and he immediately goes into the wilderness to be tempted. But I think you see all three categories in a few verses right there. Jesus come up out of the water. And he was filled with the Holy Spirit. And I really believe Jesus had the Spirit before that, but that sign was there. So he was, he was filled with the Holy Spirit. Then it says in Luke 4, 1, that he was led of the Spirit into the wilderness. Okay, so a circumstance. He had a circumstance there where the Spirit filled him. And then it says a few verses later in, in chapter 4 that he, how does it say that? Um, in, in verse 14 of chapter 4, it says, Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit into Galilee and a few verses later when he's preaching there at that synagogue he tells the, his, his audience he said the Spirit of the Lord is upon me and has anointed me to preach the gospel so there you have it you have 
the initial filling, you have a circumstance, you have a, a job at hand. All right. So I think the takeaway from this is, you know, spirit filling is um, somewhat like when a person is converted, he gets a, like a new vehicle, right? And this filling is you put the gas in. And here I got a new vehicle and I got gas and I'm going. But you know what? You can run a while and you can enjoy that new vehicle, but after a while you got to stop and fill it up again. You've got you to have a little bit more filling for, for whatever the task is at hand. And I think that's a bit the way. It's probably a very poor example, but it's a little bit the way the Holy Spirit works. He, he's there. He's, he's present. But there needs to be a regassing uh, occasionally. All right, so to help us understand why we need this refueling, we have to understand that on our part, we can do things that actually hinders the work of the Spirit in our lives. And I think sometimes that's where we get mixed up. I truly believe that some people, they're feeling dry, and they just feel like the Spirit isn't there, and they're, and they're searching, and they're like, where is it? You know, why don't I... Why don't I have a Damascus Road experience? Why, you know, why doesn't it feel right? And, and it causes them to wander you know, into maybe um, places they shouldn't to try to find this spirit feeling. I wonder sometimes if we would pay attention to what the Bible says about what hinders the Spirit's work in our lives, if that wouldn't really be helpful. Perhaps He's there, but it's so, He has so little spot in our heart that we hardly know He's there. And the fact of the matter is, it's our problem. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to run you through some verses here that lead me to that conclusion. The first one is in Ephesians 5.18. And again, a very, very familiar verse. And I'm going to wax more uh, broad on this probably at a later date. But I just want to pull out this verse at this point. It says, And be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, there's much more to that, but I'm just going to break off right there and, and uh, enlarge on that. So you notice that there is a sharp contrast here. It says, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, why, why Paul pulled out this thing of being drunk with wine versus being filled with the Spirit, I'm not quite sure. Um, but our, our King James translate that, translate that as excess. I think it's the NIV that calls it debauchery. One of the translations does. And it's, it's a, that's also a good, a good translation. But in other words, the Spirit isn't going to dwell where there's wine present, where there's debauchery, okay? So uh, there has to be an environment where the Spirit can actually live. I think that's the takeaway here, or at least one of the takeaways. You know, there is a good reason when I came to church this morning, I passed no cotton fields. I passed soybean fields and corn fields. I don't think there's anything other than that. But I passed no cotton fields. Now, you know why that wasn't? Can't grow cotton in Minnesota. It's not going to work. It just isn't going to work. You need the right atmosphere. You need the right, the right growing season. Same thing with the Spirit. He just isn't going to work. In the, in, in the presence where there's sin present, where there's debauchery, where there's excess. It's not going to happen. I don't think it's, it's out of context to, to, to relate this back and draw from the parable of the sower. And I'm not going to stay there long. But you know where I'm going with that. 
the word could not flourish where it was choked with other stuff. So we need to think about that. Does that describe me? Could that be, could that be a problem in my life? That the Spirit just doesn't have room to really work because there's so much other things crowding it out. Or the atmosphere just isn't right. Remember, our bodies are the temple of the Spirit. Alright, the second passage I would draw your attention to is the very familiar one in 1 Thessalonians 5.19 where it says these, this short sentence quench not the Spirit. Don't extinguish it. Beautiful, beautiful parallel here because the, uh, the Spirit is many times referred to as a fire. And when we think of quenching a fire, we think of dousing the water on it. It goes out. It's gone. Paul here to the Thessalonian church says, make sure you don't do that to the Spirit. I had to think of this too. And, and uh, you know, when a person has a fire going, you know, the first thing you go for is, is water, you know. A good second is dirt. I one time had a fire that got out of hand at my place there, and water was not. It was going to take me way too long to get water, so I ran for the skid loader, and I just started scooping dirt, just dumping dirt, and and then the fire went out. There's parallel here. Again, it goes back to the, our our earthboundness. Um, again, we can quench that spirit by by being way too earthbound. I think it's also interesting that the very next verse, after quench not the spirit, it says, don't despise prophesying. Another way to extinguish that spirit is if we're exposed to the word, either through reading or through teaching or whatever it is, we just zone out. We simply won't listen. Very, very good way to extinguish the spirit, I do believe. I want you to turn to this next one in Ephesians 4. In Ephesians 4, and I'm going to read just a few verses here. Um, again, a very, very familiar chapter here. Verses 22 to 32, I'm going to read. That ye put off concerning the former conversation of the old man, which is corrupt according to deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. And that ye put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Wherefore, Putting away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be ye angry and sin not, and let the sun let not the sun go down upon your wrath, neither give place to the devil. Let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor, working with his hands the thing that is good, that he may have to give which, to him which needeth. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace to the hearers. And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, evil speaking be put away from you with all malice, and be ye kind, one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. Now, when you, when you start there, verse 22, and you read down through verse 32, you know, it seems like we have a, we have a common theme here. You know, put away these things. Don't do these things. You know, and then right there in verse 30 it says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Is it, is it out of place to assume that that verse is stuck right there because the previous four verses and the following two are very much related to things that grieve the Holy Spirit? I wonder. 
So you can think about that. What speaks to you here? Is there anything that I might be doing in my life that could grieve the Holy Spirit? And verse 32 just spoke to me as I was standing here. You know, we, why are we so prone to take verse 32 and look at the 10-year-olds and say, you've got to obey that verse. You've got to be kind to your siblings. You can't punch them. You can't knock their lights out. And yet, we kind of forget that, you know, the book of Ephesians was sort of written to adults here. Are we kind? Are we tender-hearted? Can we just forgive each other? And Paul says, just remember, God forgave you. God forgave you too. Let's be careful we don't grieve the Holy Spirit. And by the word that by the way, that word grieve means to cause distress or grief. All right. I'm going to pull one out of the Old Testament here. Isaiah 63.10 is talking about the people here in Judah. It says, But they rebelled and vexed His Holy Spirit. Therefore, He was turned to be their enemy and He fought against them. And that's referring to God. God was actually fighting against these people at this point, it says. And it's because they vexed Him. To vex something means to cause pain or worry or anger even. And again, some of this begins to become redundant. But we know the story of these Jews. We know how that constantly, constantly uh, disobeying, constantly ignoring the prophets. Um, you know, in, in Chronicles there, it talks about how that God would raise up a prophet and they'd come and they'd prophesy. And at some point, God said, you know, there's no longer a remedy. There is no remedy for these people. It's really sad. And we have to ask ourselves the question, are we vexing the Holy Spirit? Then in, uh, in Acts 7, whenever Stephen is talking to his audience, he told them, he said, you resist the Holy Spirit. You actually work against it. You oppose it. And again, in that context, he's talking to extremely religious people. He said, you, you are opposing the Holy Spirit. And if you look at his, if you look at his, um, at his sermon there, it says, you're circumcised in the flesh... But your hearts are vile. You, you, you don't get it. He says, You receive the law by the disposition of angels, but you have not kept it. Jesus said similar words to uh, his audience in Mark 7 when he says, You have made the word of God of none effect through your tradition, opposing the Holy Ghost. I don't have time to wax long on that. We'll perhaps get to that another time. But think about that. Am I opposing the Holy Spirit? Galatians 5.25 says, If you live by the Spirit, walk in the Spirit. If you, if you proclaim to have the Spirit, can I like see some evidence? Would that be okay? Can I get the idea that you do? To walk in the Spirit means you should be following after. You should be occupied with the Spirit. When Paul wrote to the Roman church there in, uh, in chapter 8, there's something he says that's very, very similar. And I'm going to read that to you out of the NIV. It says, Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. That's pretty simple, isn't it? I mean, if you live in the flesh, you just kind of do what you want to do. If you live in the Spirit and you have the Spirit, you are daily conscious. I want to do what the Spirit wants me to do. 
And the Spirit's okay with that, and He's going to help you to do what He wants you to do. The Bible is filled with references to walking. And you think about what walking does for you, especially when you're doing it with somebody else. It's companionship. It's exercise. When you walk, you're making progress. You're going from one point to another. And when you think about that in the work of the Spirit in your life, there is so many parallels. Walk with the Spirit. Psalm 1 refers to people that walk not in the counsel of the ungodly. I think that's the direct opposite of walking in the Spirit. And I'll just make reference yet to the, to the um, Matthew 12, uh, 31, where Jesus talks about blasphemy against the Holy, the Holy Spirit. And I, and I talked more about that when we were talking um, about Jesus' teaching on the Holy Spirit, but I want to emphasize it again. I truly believe that blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is more than just cursing the Holy Spirit. You know, that's what we want to think. That's what we maybe sort of think about. It's like, wow, who could do that? Who would just up it, curse the Holy Spirit? And perhaps that happens in very vile situations. But I really believe that when you think of blasphemy, it's actually impious or injurious speaking of the Holy Spirit. And I would just suggest to you that perhaps we can do this passively uh, by assigning to the Holy Spirit what is actually of the devil and assigning to the devil what is actually of the Holy Spirit. You get, you get your mix all talked up. You get your, you, you know, right looks wrong and wrong looks right. And people get to that point. It's abundantly clear in the, from the Bible that people get to that point. And we can look out our windows today and see that. Let's be careful. We don't do that. So the conclusion of this set of verses, I believe, is that due to my handling of situations and experiences in life, which can be many and varied, we can actually keep the Spirit from firing on all eight cylinders in our life. I really believe we can. And we never really experience that fullness that He'd like to to give in our lives. And then we begin to, again, I say, we begin to question, why is it that happening? In conclusion here, I'm going to look at a case study in the Bible of a people that really had issues or really grappling with what it meant to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And it's going to be very quick and brief. This could be multiple sermons, I'm sure. But it's the, it's the church at Corinth. And I'm just going to thumb through the, the book of Corinthians very briefly and, and, and show you what was happening here in Corinth. And I was, I was surprised at the parallel I saw when I, when I thought of our day today. So in, in 1 Corinthians 12:13, I think we can conclude from that verse that the people at Corinth had received the Holy Spirit. It said, for one spirit, we all were baptized into one body. Whether we are Jews or Gentiles, bond or free, we're all made to drink into one spirit. Now, now Paul's writing this to the Corinthian church. And, and it seems to me he's telling him, look, church, you have been baptized with the spirit. That has happened to you. You have the spirit. He also tells them that they had been enriched with spiritual gifts. In 1 Corinthians 1.4, he says, I thank my God always on your behalf for the grace of God which is given you by Jesus Christ, that you have been enriched by him in all utterance and in all knowledge. 
And in verse 6 he says, Even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you. And I don't think it would be out of place to say that that testimony of Christ was the Holy Spirit. Because at another place in Romans it says, The Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the sons of God. So I don't think that would be, be out of place to say that. And then in verse 7 in chapter 1 it says, So that you come behind in no gift. Or another rendering says like this, Therefore, you do not lack in any spiritual gift. So there you got it. These people actually seem to have some gifts uh, hanging around there at the church in Corinth. However, Paul gives his, his uh, very blunt observation in 1 Corinthians 3 when he puts it like this. He says, Brothers, I cannot speak unto you as spiritual, but only as carnal, unregenerate people. Even as babes in Christ, I fed you with milk and not with meat, because you couldn't bear it. Verse 3, are ye not carnal? For as there is among you envying and strife and division, you walk as men, he says. He says, one person says, I am Paul. Another says, I'm of Apollos. He goes, you folks are carnal. So he says, yes, you have received the Spirit. You even have some gifts hanging around. But you folks are pretty carnal. I mean, the Spirit's running at a pretty low ebb around here. And now I'm going to briefly just refer to you what some of these issues were they were grappling with. In chapters 1 and 3, he addresses schism. That's all over the, 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 the church of Corinth. I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. I'm of Cephas. I'm of this person. I'm of that person. He says, that is carnal. Chapter 3, he says, you know, you, you folks can't even really endure much meat. He said, I'm sitting here feeding you milk. You can't really take good, heavy, solid meat yet in your diet. Chapter 4, he talks about how that they were struggling with spiritual pride. And they were, they were, the spiritual pride had even made them allow an extremely sinful brother to be part of the congregation. And he, he reprimands them for that. In chapter 6, they were quite willing to take each other to law rather than to be defrauded. In the last part of chapter 6 and chapter 7, very confused on some very important marital issues and sexual sins and so on. Chapter 8, they were quite willing to mar their brother's conscience in the name of liberty and not mind their brother. Paul said, that's wrong. You can't do that. You've got to think about your brother. You just can't run roughshod over your brother. Chapter 11, very confused on headship order and its expression. Also, the, um, the uh, very unhealthy observance of communion. He said, you're having these communion services. One person's coming and gorging and another person's hungry. He said, this, this isn't right. This has got to stop. You can't do this. Chapter 13, he waxes long on love and why love is so important. It seems like perhaps love was lacking there. And it's interesting to me that the first thing he starts out with in verse 1, he said, I don't care if I can speak with tongues of men or of angels. I don't care about that. He said, if you don't have love, he said, you may as well go beat on a, on a brass cymbal, he goes. Chapter 12 and 14, it seems they had a very unhealthy attitude about the gifts of the Spirit, supposing that some are much more important than others, and desiring, and I think it's interesting, that this carnal church 
just had this deal with tongues. They just loved this tongues thing. And, and they, could, they just couldn't get enough of it. And they were really into it. And then in chapter 14, the end of chapter 14, after he, he addresses their infatuation with tongues, it shows how that they had progressed to a very disorderly church service. And they even had women apparently teaching uh, out of place there. Does anything about this summary of the church at Corinth like kind of ring true or clear? It just it felt to me as I looked at that that it's like, you know what? Nothing's new in the world, is there? Just nothing is new. Um, it, it just felt like we see this. You know, the, whenever one reads this, this um, through this book here of Corinthians, you just get the sense that the spirit fullness was running very, very low and there seemed to be a very reckless abandonment of very important things. That's just the way it seemed to be. And again, we just have to ask ourselves, is that, is that happening in my life? Could it be happening in my life? It's time to close. And so I'm going to do that. The next time, I hope we can look at something a bit more positive. We've looked at things that are evidences or things we can do or not do to sort of run out of gas. So the next time I'd like to look at what we, things we can do or things we are commanded that actually will fill us with the Spirit and will give that expression in our lives.